0: like what we do here at Clever, please consider supporting the show. To make a one-time donation, click the link in the episode description. Thank you.
1: Hello there. This message is coming to you from the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, a collection of fascinating conversations with leading historians, giving you the lowdown on history's biggest characters, hidden stories, and greatest adventures. Speaking of great adventures, this week, the History Extra podcast is brought to you by Booking.com. Whether you're looking for a culture-filled city break, a local getaway, or a far-flung adventure, you can save at least 30% with Booking.com's Black Friday deals. These deals are for a limited time only, so you'll need to book before 1st of December to make the most of them. But the good news is that you'll have the flexibility to travel any time in 2021. Head to booking.com forward slash Black Friday to book your next big adventure.
2: I have wasted a lot of time and money on foundations that don't match me, and now I can't even swatch in store anymore. Thankfully, I found the Il Maquillage Power Match quiz. It literally found my perfect foundation shade in seconds. Plus, with Try Before You Buy, I was even sent my full-size match to try for free for 14 days. But
0: I'm definitely keeping this. Take the quiz at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E.com slash quiz. Support for Clever comes from Master & Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master & Dynamic's headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do, so Master & Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design-obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself, too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master & Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit MasterDynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's MasterDynamic.com.
3: I know, I know. I would not have gone... A minute more without adding you the second I saw you.
2: I was going to (laughs) say I would be really insulted if you don't add me as a friend on Skype.
3: How how messed up would that be?
2: Well, I don't think I got added. My feelings are hurt. (laughs) What is
3: wrong with you guys? Of course you got added. You got added yesterday. I did? Before Jamie.
0: Oh, shit. Guess (laughs) who? Yep,
2: yep. I'll ask you all the tough questions today, Brad. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie. I'm Amy. And this is Clever.
0: All right. Today, we've got Mr. Brad Ascalon on the show. He's a product designer specializing in furniture, lighting, and packaging, among other consumer products. He was born outside of Philly and comes from a noteworthy lineage of creatives, which you'll hear all about when we talk. He detoured through the music industry before deciding to study industrial design at Pratt.
2: Before the ink was even dry on his master's diploma, Wallpaper Magazine named him one of the 10 most wanted emerging designers in the world. Since then, he's worked with brands such as Design Within Reach, Lean Rosé, Council, Other, L'Oreal, and Restoration Hardware, just to give you an idea.
0: He's exhibited his work globally and racked up a lot of press in all the major magazines. Plus. His band Footsteps won the Cherry Hill, New Jersey East High School Battle of the Bands back in the mid-90s. Let's get the story from Brad.
3: My name is Brad Ascalon. I am an industrial designer and furniture designer based in Manhattan. I do what I do because I think there's this need for creative people to, to put their passions into the world. I think whether you're an artist, a musician, a chef, or a designer... It's kind of this drug, this rush, you know, where your ideas are let loose in some tangible form and uh, you want the world or some small part of the world to appreciate it or utilize it in some way. That's that's the reason most, I think, creatives do what they do. But the other thing that I get out of what I do is when I'm working with my clients, factories, brands around the world, this process of bringing ideas into the world uh, alongside with them, some of whom I've spent hundreds of hours with, aligning our ideas, the direction of a project, et cetera, it, it builds this relationship that's, I think, unattainable in any other way. And and at the end of the day, we do need relationships and one of the reasons I love doing what I do is, is that I've made friends around the world through my craft.
2: Yeah, we met. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah.
2: Um, exactly. And when we met, we found out that we are both from the same little town in southern New Jersey called Cherry Hill. But you were on the east side and I was on the west side. You went to east and I went to west, which is funny because they're like rival schools.
3: Yeah, but we were also like less than a mile away from each other. I was like on the border of East and West. Yeah, so so was
2: uh, I. Yeah, they were telling uh, me like I could pick maybe which high school I wanted to go to because the bus from both schools came through our neighborhood. You know, I'd like to go back to that time and just ask you to talk a little bit about what your childhood was like and, and your family dynamic. Do you have siblings? Was it traditional Mom dad picket fence dog
3: Yeah yeah it was uh it was mom dad picket fence two brothers no dog It was a pretty standard nuclear suburban family that I that I grew up with I was in the middle of of three boys I grew up with parents who were always unbelievably supportive and nurturing and kind of pushed us to to be individuals and think our minds and and do what we felt was right explore kind of our options in life self expression art, um and, you know, I, I grew up with uh, a father, a grandfather, an uncle and an aunt all being artists. And so that, that creative um, engagement from their end was kind of unavoidable, you know. In a way, we were surrounded by abstract paintings and sculpture and, and beautiful mid-century modern furniture. And, you know, my friends grew up with frame and museum posters or like even worse, paintings of dogs playing poker, you know. And uh, I grew up <laughs> in an incredibly creative environment with amazing inspiration all around me.
0: Tell us more about this creative family. Your grandfather, what was his gig?
3: He was born in Hungary. And when he was 15 years old, his parents refused to allow him to be an artist. And so he checked out, he left them. He went and, and did his thing uh, on his own. He traveled to Belgium and Italy to study sculpture and art, eventually landed in Israel and start, founded a decorative arts company called Bell, designing decorative objects, candle holders, vases, In fact, in some circles, uh, he's considered to be the father of Israeli Art Deco. Oh, cool. Quite an inspirational story and an inspirational uh, creative figure. But I wasn't very close to him until he saw that I started getting into the visual arts. I was always into music growing up, and I guess he didn't care too much for that. When he saw me starting to paint, I think he realized I've got some of his blood in me.
0: Let me wrap my head around your dynamic a little bit more. Is this grandfather your father's father or your mother's father?
3: Yeah, so this is my father's father. And uh, eventually he landed in the U.S. He lived between L.A. and New York. In the 70s, he founded Ascalon Studios with my dad. And to this day, my father uh, still runs it along with my older brother. And they create large-scale installation art, mostly in stained glass, mosaics, metal for uh, public spaces, for religious institutions, So this was my childhood. This was my after school job. This was my apprenticeship. And from the two of them, I learned more than anything, the importance of craft, the importance of materials, the sacredness and responsibility of the resources that we use.
0: Let me ask you something. A lot of times kids are sort of pressured to do something a little bit more... Security oriented than, let's say, the creative arts. Did you feel the opposite? Did you feel pressure to go into the creative arts?
3: No, I, I, felt, <laughs> I felt the same pressure that everybody else felt. You know, my father wanted me to become a, a doctor or a lawyer. Or...
0: Was he steering you away from a lofty goal of something that was not necessarily a very secure profession?
3: Well, yeah, he struggled. You know, he struggled for a long time until he kind of found his found his groove, and and he didn't want the same for me. Sure. Yeah, so he was. Obviously looking out for me.
0: So was there a push-pull there, like a real celebration of the creative arts and yet a conflict over, I want the best for my son, I don't want him to struggle like I do?
3: No conflict. I just think the two worked hand in hand. He and my mother's wanted me to be a well-rounded individual. So, you know, they weren't going to uh, fault me if I chose to go into the arts. They wanted me to do my thing and be as well-rounded as I could, I guess.
0: And your aunt and uncle that were both creative artists, were they also on your father's side? Uh, yeah. Okay. And then how does your mom factor into this? Is she creative as well? She's creative in her
3: own ways, but she's worked with my father for years. You know, she ran the books and was the office support that he needed because he's the opposite. It's like whereas my business is kind of part being creative, part running a business. He's only thinking about the art and the fabrication of it. So my mom really was there as the other end of the spectrum.
0: The the practical side.
3: Yeah, a little more practical. Yeah.
0: So you discovered painting and your grandfather took a shine to you, but you were also into music. So let's talk about your creative outlets as an as an adolescent when everybody else is, I don't know, trying to figure out how to get with the opposite sex or, (laughs) you know, (laughs) establish their identity. What were you doing
3: when I was in second grade? My friend down the street was moving to Florida with his family and they were selling this old ratty piano that was sitting in their basement collecting dust for years. And my parents just, for some reason, dreamed that one of, one of their three boys would, would learn how to play the piano. So they bought the piano. They literally rolled it a third of a mile down the road, <laughs> lugged it into our house, and it's been sitting in our house ever since. I took lessons from maybe third grade on, third and fourth grade, fifth grade, and I hated it. I never practiced. It was just a waste of my time. So I quit. You know, against my parents' wishes, I just couldn't do it anymore. But the day I quit, I played an hour to a day, and I haven't stopped since.
0: Uh. What does that say?
3: I hate structure. Yeah. (laughs) I don't don't like being told what to do. I don't uh, and the truth is, like I can't even read sheet music, you know. I always learn through listening, experimenting, exploring on my own and just kind of creating my own rules and and learn how to play um, without any kind of structure, strategy, or or thought process. Just like let's learn this thing that's in front of us. You know, what do the white keys do? What do the black keys do? How do they combine? And how do I make something that just emotionally resonates with me. You know, it was never about other people. And so from an early age, I was writing music and playing all the time. And eventually uh, eighth grade, I was in a family trip and snagged my older brother's guitar and took it with me, bought a chord book and started learning guitar. And once I started playing the guitar, I went from being into sports and being into, you know, hockey and and whatever the, the, the neighborhood kids were doing to playing music, you know, being in bands, writing songs,
2: Tell me about your bands. Did you guys do Battle of the Bands in high school or anything like that?
3: (laughs) We won Battle of the Bands. Oh, no way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My senior year. Your band was called? Oh, my goodness. It sounds like a Christian rock band, but I promise you it wasn't. It was called Footsteps.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's right. You told me that once. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> it does sound like a Christian rock band, but what was your sound?
3: Well, in high school it was just a bunch of covers. We played these medleys of songs that made absolutely no sense together. It was like, let's combine the Who and Journey and Green Day and make a, you know, a medley out of it. But a couple of years later, we kind of regrouped with some additional um members of the band and and then we actually played for a good 3-4 years, uh recorded a couple albums. We opened up for Chicago once. Whoa! Yeah, we started to have a little uh, groove going. And even then our sound wasn't defined because, you know, I was into everything from blues rock to uh, blur. And my bass player was into jazz and my drummer was into classic rock. And the other guitarist was into poison and glam rock. And our singer was into a singer-songwriter. So it was just such a hodgepodge. But, you know, we made it work, even though one song to the next on our album would be like two completely different bands and two completely different genres.
0: Did you tour playing small clubs and stuff, or did you just stick local?
3: Philly was our, you know, stomping ground, but we played a lot in New York City and Manhattan. We drove up to uh, Columbus, Ohio, and and we kind of, wherever we can get a gig, we, we played, you know. It was fun. It was a great time to be doing that. It was like middle of college. It was great.
2: Yeah, I was going to ask you about college because you're so creative with music and have such an interest in painting and the arts, but you ended up doing undergrad at Rutgers in communication. Can you talk about how you ended up doing that?
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, Rutgers was where you're supposed to go if you lived in New Jersey and I'm surprised you didn't go there. (laughs) My husband
2: went to Rutgers.
3: (laughs) What what town from New Jersey is he from? Marlton. There you go. Yep. That's where you're supposed to go. That's where my older brother went, you know, in-state tuition. Why not? But I had a hard time there. I had good friends, but education-wise, it was pretty rough. I came into the school, you know, referencing our conversation earlier, um, I wanted to do the opposite of what my father did. You know, he was an artist. I wanted to go into business school just because I wanted to make my own path, you know. And uh, for two and a half years, I took all the prereqs for business and statistics, micro and macroeconomic analysis, money and banking, these courses that are so far beyond me. And I was miserable. I was just squeaking by. And, you know, the only thing that kept me together academically was my music minor in uh, music theory, which I was passionate about. And ultimately I realized this whole business thing wasn't me. And maybe now I'd be a lot better at it. But back then it just, it was, it was the last thing on my mind. It was, it was so boring, so uninteresting. And, uh, and I changed my major to communication because That's what you do when you have no idea what you want to do with the rest of your life. (laughs) And from that point on, it was like 4.0s until I got the hell out of Rutgers, you know.
2: You started a multidisciplinary design studio in 2006. And I assume that you must look back on some of those classes and be like, gosh, I'm really glad I took that right
3: oh yeah for sure okay (laughs)
2: because as owning your own business like if you're a creative person it's great but you still need to get the business side of it done every day whether it's accounting or just business administrative stuff
3: any good designer any successful design business they've really got to have a split between their left and right brain and fortunately you know I did get a lot of that, not necessarily how to run a business, but how to organize the business, how to kind of strategize moving forward. A lot of that I gained from some classes I took, but then from, you know, my first jobs out of school, which were pre-designed for me.
2: Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. You were in advertising and also the music industry. What did you do and talk about those experiences?
3: Yeah. I always wanted to be in the music industry. That was the dream, you know, not necessarily performing, but um, just being around it and working in it and, uh, my first gig out of college was for a boutique ad agency that did live entertainment, Broadway shows, things like that. And I thought that would be, you know, a nice segue into the industry somehow through through networking. And I hated it. I was there for about 15 months and my direct supervisor left and somebody came in to take the position that I was preparing for and I had to train him. Ew. Yeah, right? Yeah. I had to train him to, to take my job. Funny enough, I ran into him recently. His partner went to high school with me and graduated with me, and he's like the greatest guy. But back then, I kind of resented the fact that I had to teach this guy the ropes of the position that I was shooting for. So eventually I I left and I I got a job at Atlantic Records, and I was doing marketing for kind of their alternative genres, jazz, electronic, classical, minimal, avant-garde music, all the things I loved. And the job was amazing. My bosses were great. It was a dream job. Until 9-11. Mm, and, what happened? Uh, well, what happened during nine eleven?
0: No, no, no. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you don't know that story.
0: <laughs> no, please. What happened to your job at Atlantic Records after
3: 9-11? No shock. Um, this wasn't the uh, division that was the big moneymaker, you know. It mm-hmm. wasn't their, their pop genre. It wasn't um, sustainable. And uh, my whole division just disappeared. It was the first to get laid off in that company.
0: Yeah, everybody had to shrink and tighten up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It was a scary time.
3: It was. And so, you know, the the industry was kind of shaky for a long time.
2: You were living in New York at that time.
3: I was living in New York at that time. And you got laid off. I was laid off. I got... I was out of work for about four or five months. And then eventually I got a job at Electra Records, which, you know, every stereotype you hear about people in the music industry without overgeneralizing, you know, it's a big group of horrible people. (laughs) And that made me hate an industry that I only ever wanted to love.
2: That's a bummer because it sounds like you had a great experience at Atlantic.
3: Yeah, I did. I did.
2: So did that totally turn you off from the music industry? And is that why you pivoted?
3: Yeah, completely. I kind of had this quarter life crisis. I left a lecture with no plan, no strategy, nothing. I just couldn't do it. So yeah, quarter life crisis. What the hell am I going to do with my life? And you know, I I wasn't that skilled in anything yet. I'd been working for a few years, but I wasn't a pro at anything. So I'm, I'm looking for work. And I guess I got to a point where I realized there is so much more knowledge to be had. And I'm limiting this, this search for a job to this tiny little of the world's knowledge base that i can kind of fit into i had this heart-to-heart with my father and he's not the one for heart-to-heart he's not like a cold man he's very warm but we've never just had a moment like this and he was always in the back of his mind thinking i should go into architecture he thought it'd be great for me and uh that's where he got his degree from pratt actually coincidentally because that's where i got my design degree yeah, he he had this heart to heart with me and, and he's just like pushing me. He's like, you should look into architecture at the very least. And I started looking into it. And then along the way, I discovered this field that at the time, I think our entire society just took for granted industrial design. I was obsessed with this idea that the things around us, every single thing you're staring at right now was created by people. And they put time and effort and strategy and problem solving into all of these things.
0: That's an exciting moment. I mean, I remember growing up not knowing what the hell industrial design was. And then I figured it out. And I was like, Oh, my God.
3: (laughs) What? This is amazing. There's this like mentality that like everything just comes off of a conveyor belt magically and ends up in spurs, you know, and that's the furthest thing from the truth. Because you know, it could take you a year and a half to develop a wine glass,
2: you know? Yeah. And it totally devalues the object and the humans that, that make them. And I think that's one of the reasons Amy and I were so passionate about talking to designers because we really want people to understand how much work really goes into making a product. It doesn't just pop out of a factory machine and yeah, get boxed up and shipped to your house. Like, There's a labor of love.
3: Absolutely. And there are so many people on board doing so many different things just to get a product into the market. You know, I've worked on seating collections that took three, four years. And at the end of the day, it looks simple. It looks effortless. But a lot of people struggled to get it to that point.
0: Your heart to heart with your father is kind of what convinced you to look at architecture. And through looking at architecture, you found industrial design. And is that what led you to go get a master's at Pratt?
3: That was it. I looked at a few different schools and Pratt just spoke to me for some reason. And I took a few courses to get into the program, some design and and drawing courses. And then, yeah, I spent the next two and a half years there getting a master's degree.
0: And was it a click, like a major resonant click? Did you know when you started studying industrial design that this was a good fit for you?
3: Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, all the things in the past kind of led me to this. I'm not a believer in that. You know, my mom's the believer in that. You know, everything happens for a reason. I don't believe it, but for some reason it happened and I found what I think satisfies me more than any other career ever could.
0: So two and a half years at grad school and then you're popped out onto the streets of Manhattan as a designer. What do you do then? (laughs) How did you go from being a student to a professional?
3: I got a phone call. I had submitted some work online early on to some design blogs when design blogs just started kind of coming out. I got a phone call from a... uh, creative director at L'Oreal. And uh, this is right at the time when I was putting a portfolio together, wondering what the hell I'm going to do. Where am I going to work? This guy calls me up and he says, we saw some of your work and, and we like, you know, the way you think. Do you want to come in for a meeting? And I came into a meeting. My first client was was L'Oreal. And I worked with them for about a year and a half. Some of their sub brands, Maybelline and Redken and Shuyumura.
0: Designing Packaging. Design,
3: yeah, packaging, cosmetics. You know, it wasn't something I was passionate about, but I was learning, you know, and, and I, was, I was getting my feet wet and I was getting paid well for the work I was doing. That kind of afforded me the ability to just pull the trigger and start my studio.
0: Cheers to L'Oreal for getting you kind of primed and ready. What were some of the other professional milestones that came along after that? And as is my experience, usually with growth like that also comes some hard fought real life lessons that are ultimately beneficial, but at the time feel really
3: scary. <laughs> Can you tell us about some of those? Yeah, I mean, listen, it's always an uphill battle. You know, it doesn't matter what part of your career, what stage you're in. It's it's an uphill battle. The people around you have every reason to say no. Um, Because it's not just about you and your skill set. It's about the businesses that they're running and the strategies that they're creating for their businesses. But, you know, early on, I had some pretty unique and amazing things happen. I was interning for Karam Rashid early on and Wallpaper Magazine featured me as one of 10 up and coming designers in the world. Uh, This was in 2005. And for all I know, the journalist who wrote the article pointed from a phone book and found my name. I have no idea. But press follows press in a lot of cases, and that um, started to to give my my reputation a little bit of a buzz. And from there, I was contacted by Lynn rose which is one of the greatest brands on the planet out of France. started working with them within, a, I'd say, about a year and a half of, of starting my studio. I've had people support me along the way. Jerry Helling, um, who's the president of Bernhardt Design, he really took an interest in me and my work very early on. You can't do this in a vacuum. No designer can do this in a vacuum by themselves. It takes a village, you know, and the village that I had, I thank God every day that I had them because they helped me to build this this career that I absolutely love.
0: Do you feel like that village is mostly cobbled together from people you've met in your professional life? I know some people come out of school with a network of collaborators that kind of go off to do their own thing, but you still have this school-based network of alumni you can rely on. Do you have both?
3: No, my um, my network was was never built around anyone at Pratt. I, I knew that I had to meet everybody there is to meet and learn very quickly, you know, who I got along with and who I saw out eye with. So, you know, in the case of Lynn Rosé, I was still a grad student and I started talking to somebody at ICFF. Um, I think it was the last year they actually showed there, Jessica Cross, who, you know, climbed the ladder of the company um, over the years and Eventually, she shared my work to Antoine Rosé, who runs the North American operations for the brand. And I got a phone call from them. Maybe three years later, but it was just that persistence and that, you know, let me show you what I do. Let me show you that I'm worthy of working with you kind of mentality. It's, and a lot of it is just fake it till you make it. You know, I pretended I should be in front of all the people that I put myself in front of, even though I had no reason and no right to. Some people reacted to me and reacted to my work and, and how I talked about design and, and how I felt about design. And so my network was entirely based on me going out there and meeting people. Meeting them at the design fairs in Milan, and Stockholm, in, in Paris, and just kind of being part of that scene that I wanted to be part of. And now the network extends to, you know, designers all over the world who I follow and who follow me. And we see each other and we reunite every design fair there is and manufacturers and PR people. and You know, it's, it's just this amazing community of people who are passionate about one thing.
0: Are there any instances in which that aggressive networking kind of backfired or didn't serve you as well as you thought it would that turned out to be a lesson you could use constructively going forward?
3: Yeah. I mean, there's instances in which you build a rapport with people and you think this is good. This is kind of, you know, going to lead to something big, I think. And they tell you the same and it just never happens. And you're wondering, you know, well, what is it? What's the reasoning? You know, why, why isn't it happening? And you, and you, you get down on yourself and you say, am I good enough? Are there just that many people better than me? What's, what's the issue, you know? And a lot of the times it's just bad timing.
0: Yeah. Or they have a set of circumstances they're dealing with that have nothing to do with you. They don't want to burn that bridge. So they keep you on the line because they don't know. Maybe it will come to fruition and they're going to need you at some point.
3: Exactly. When I was younger, I took it to heart. I mean, I was such... An emotional wreck over it. I thought I was just being dumped every single time somebody oh, said, oh, you know? Sweet young Brad Ascalaga.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> That's
3: rough. It's rough. But you know what? The, you eventually learned the reason is not me. Hopefully. Hopefully it is, it, it is some back end stuff that you're not privy to. You need thick skin. You know, if you don't have insanely thick skin, you can't do what, what we do. You can't do what designers are doing because, you know, you get rejected a lot. And you just have to roll with it and you have to learn from it. And even when you're you're midway through a project or almost done a project and last minute, the project doesn't launch for some reason. You can't take it personally. You can't burn your bridges. You have to accept it. You have to accept that this is a reality of what we do. 11, 12 years into your career, if you still feel like you're getting dumped every time somebody says no, then find a different career, I'd say.
0: You can't take it personally. And that's a real skill, a tool in your toolbox. But then you also have to be sensitive enough To take in the impressions that the world can have on you in order to generate new inventions and ideas that nobody's seen or thought of before. It's a real intermingling of this ability to not take things personally and yet maximize your sensitivity. And so that brings me to your creative process. And you do so many different types of products. You work in so many different materials and processes and product categories Is there any consistency to your process? Can you isolate like what it starts with and where does it go?
3: I like to think of myself as a rational designer, not an emotional one. My projects tend to begin with either some strategic brief from a client and uh, some needs that need to be met i don't tend to put poetry and symbolism whatnot into my work too often or on the other end there's some desire to explore a new way to think about the objects that we use you know that we take for granted perhaps you know this is how x is done but you know what other ways can we accomplish the same thing the same functionality so it kind of starts there you know when i was in grad school we'd have teachers who would tell us to pick an object out of a hat you know a little piece of paper you open it up and it says oh cd player and then you pick an animal out of another hat and octopus and you have to design an octopus inspired cd player and that's not real that's not how the real world works and um that's not how i work as a designer and some people are great at it some people are just they think ultra conceptually and they've made great careers out of it but you know i'm i'm a rationalist what's necessary. And I, th- I think the best designers will just completely deconstruct um, the objects around them so that they can build them back up in a completely unique way and a new way of thinking about it. We just did a, a recent project with Other it's a candle holder. And historically, the candle goes into a hole in some material. That's the support that the candle gets when you light it. And we don't need that hole. We need three points. You know, we need three points that the candle can't escape this little pocket of air. The idea is it's as much as it needs to be and as little as it can be kind of simultaneously, you know, and that, that for me is like this reductive process. Does what I'm doing add to the functionality of a design? Is it perhaps a detail that's necessary, you know, from a manufacturing or engineering perspective? Is it integral to the concept, you know? And, and if it's not, I eliminate it. I think there are kind of two different types of designers in the world. There's the,
1: Imagine if you could shop the shelves of all your local liquor stores at the same time? Well, spoiler alert, you can with Drizzly, the number one alcohol delivery app. Drizzly lets you compare prices from local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits. Then get them delivered right to your door in under 60 minutes. And right now, Drizzly is giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter promo code SAVE5 at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's d r i z l y.com
0: support for clever comes from master and dynamic we know you love great design and care about quality audio so we know you will love master and dynamics headphones and earphones brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do so master and dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike and after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master & Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code Clever for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com.
3: The rationalists and then the stylists. And not to say one is better than the other, but I kind of fall to one side. Does that make any sense whatsoever?
2: It does. It's <laughs> just thinking about your process because you were mentioning reductive, but then also deconstructing the object.
3: I think the main point is design as a stylistic exercise is, to me, just a very mundane behavior. You know it's a mundane endeavor. and you know I'll be honest, I do it when I have to when a client's just in need of something kind of aesthetically one direction or another. but that, that's not what really does it for me. you know I love beautiful things just as much as the next person, right? Probably more because I'm a designer. but it's the way in which that beautiful object happens. you know it, it's it's how the designer finds a beautiful solution that's intriguing to me. if they set out, to create this beautiful object, you know, so what? That's 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 uninteresting. If the result of all the other things, if, you know, the obstacles, the manufacturing process, the material challenges, the client, their budgets, the marketing needs, if all of that gets kind of thrown into the hopper and the result is beautiful, that to me is good design. That's design that excites me, you know? It's design that could be reduced uh, to my point earlier exactly as much as it needs to be while simultaneously kind of as little as it can be, you know?
2: Right. And like the form of the object as being a beautiful thing is not the driving factor, certainly not the point of focus for you or the starting point. It's more like, you know, can I meet all of these criteria and can I also maybe change the form in a way that functions better or differently. And in the end, it's attractive.
3: Yeah, I mean, the form is going to be the result of lots of other things. I mean, it's it's Louis Sullivan 101, you know, form follows function. We we kind of can push and pull that a little more than we used to be able to because of technology and possibilities that exist now that didn't. But uh, yeah, I think that's exactly right.
2: We'll be back with Brad in a few. Support for Clever
0: comes from Parachute. Listen to me. Can you hear how well-rested I sound? I got amazing sleep last night, and today I'm pretty much invincible. I just got linen bedsheets from Parachute, and they are everything. It's getting warmer here in Los Angeles, so nighttime temperature regulation is key. And they are so light, airy, and breathable, I feel like I'm sleeping in a cloud of unicorn whispers. They're soft and crisp at the same time, which means they feel good on my skin without the suffocating clinginess of heavier sheets that makes me feel like I'm buried alive. And they're all natural, non-toxic, produced with a small eco footprint, and more affordable than you'd think. All important ingredients for excellent dreams. The only question is, top sheet or no top sheet? I'm a top sheet kind of girl, but I know plenty of people who prefer to go topless. Parachute understands that and so they sell the top sheet separately. You do you. You can find out all about their linen, percale, and sateen sheets
2: at parachutehome.com. Support for Clever also comes from Benchmade Modern. Buying a sofa that fits your room and your taste is such a hassle. You waste a ton of time on trips to multiple showrooms, there are almost no customization options, and you'll wait 12 plus weeks for your sofa to arrive. Benchmade Modern feels your pain and has your solution. They make affordable, custom-sized modern sofas in days, not months. Choose your perfect style from their collections, decide on your custom dimensions and configuration, pick your fabric and leg color, and then you're done. They'll make your sofa in 14 days or less. Yeah, that's right. They'll make a custom sofa in two weeks or less. To start designing your dream sofa, go to BenchmadeModern.com to order free swatches. Use the code CLEVER and take 15% off your order.
0: So with regard to your process, I'm imagining you ideating and rendering and going back and forth to clients and manufacturing facilities and sort of overseeing the prototyping. Do I have that right? Because you don't have your own workshop where you're actually prototyping a lot yourself, right? You kind of have to do that through your clients?
3: Yeah, exactly. There are times when I have little details made and, and uh, sketch models and, and whatnot built. But um, no, I'm kind of, I'm glad I don't prototype on my own. You know, I'd rather leave that to the professionals because they're the ones who are going to learn about certain limitations when it comes to production. And they're going to teach me those obstacles along the way so we can kind of overcome them and problem solve them together. But to your point, yeah, while I'm not like physically engaging in making prototypes, you know, I go to the factories I work with. I get my hands just as dirty as, you know, all the other guys who are working in the factory. And, you know, I have to be there to see how things are done so I can, you know, understand the materials, the processes, their limitations, and the challenges involved.
0: So I know for me, sometimes the actual physical act of making something also somehow like loosens my brain up to arrive at solutions. So do you have a hands on activity that you can do in your studio? I mean, is it music?
3: Yeah, it's music. I play my piano I have a a piano here uh, in my studio and I have a couple guitars here a few guitars here and I like to take a half hour a day when I just get to this point where creativity is not flowing and it's kind of my meditation it's like I forget about all of these challenges that I'm facing every day and all these deadlines and obstacles and and I just play and when I come out of that I can just start fresh and go be creative again or at least attempt to be (laughs)
0: I don't know what it is, but there is something sort of magical about your brain and your hands and your heart kind of all working together on something that kind of doesn't matter in the moment. (laughs) You know, something's just sort of loose and free that tends to sort of jog things that are stuck.
3: Yeah, of course. It's a, a reason why people meditate. My brothers both meditate and they started getting me into it. And I wish I had the discipline to continue with it. But I would be in the middle of my living room just in the middle of a, a, a little private meditation center. And then all of a sudden the bar cart that I'm designing, like this problem I've been trying to figure out for two months, just boom, it just pops into my head. It's, <laughs> you can't You can't solve these problems when you're trying to solve these problems. You know, it doesn't happen that way. It happens when it's unexpected, when your brain just allows itself to loosen up and not be so strict and stringent, you know?
0: Yeah. Thinking too hard almost always prevents the actual solution from coming to you.
3: Luckily for me, I've got a lot of ways to escape that. My newest one, I just got a uh, a whittling set from my wife's grandmother for my birthday. Oh, mm-hmm. really? Yeah. This you is, like uh, carving
0: spoons and stuff?
3: I'm going to start. <laughs> All right. I'm going to start. Yeah, I got this amazing like high-end whittling set and I'm going to sit and start to whittle because... Maybe there's more I can learn out of that, you know?
0: You got to make yourself a corncob pipe.
3: <laughs> I'm going to make you a corncob pipe. That's the first thing. Yeah. I will
0: take it. Yes. Really? <laughs> yeah, I'll smoke the shit out of
3: that. <laughs> <laughs> the funniest thing is I opened this box and I got all these whittling tools and it comes with a package of band-aids. I'm like, shit. <laughs> so, Part of the process,
2: sorry. Yeah, Safety first.
3: I don't want to lose any digits.
2: (laughs) You're probably going to go down this crazy YouTube hole of like whittling videos.
3: (laughs) I do that right now. My birthday just happened.
2: How many years young?
3: All of them. (laughs)
0: Good
2: answer. Because you're my age. Good answer.
3: (laughs) (laughs) My wife bought me the guitar of my dreams. What'd you get? I got this gorgeous Martin, um, this parlor style guitar. It's my dream. That's it. It's just the, the dream guitar. And I've been recently obsessed with bluegrass. Not because I've always loved bluegrass, because it is the perfect music for this guitar. (laughs) And so I'm obsessed with YouTube videos and I'm watching 50 different people a day learning all these riffs. And now I'm learning uh, some bluegrass music, which I'm very psyched about.
0: I'm psyched about that too, because I think YouTube is continuing education for everyone.
3: Absolutely. You don't need to pay for anything. You don't need to pay for guitar lessons. Just YouTube it.
0: You can learn how to skin a coyote if you want to. It's amazing.
3: <laughs> that's, that's another hobby I'm getting into. <laughs>
2: oh, great.
0: All right. So let's delve into your personal life a little bit, mostly because I think a lot of our listeners hear somebody who sounds so successful, and we need to deconstruct that a little bit. And you can relate to the idea of deconstruction in order to figure out what makes something tick or how it works. And it's only human to have some demons that you have to face down on the regular what are yours?
3: That's hard to answer. Um, yeah, I know it's a tough question. Oh my God, you're going to make me think. You're going to make me break down and cry. It's okay. It's a safe space. <laughs> I don't know that I've got too many demons, you know? I mean, for the sake of the question, I wish I did. I'm kind of glad I don't. You know, if there was one demon, it it, it is always kind of that What we already discussed, you know, that getting rejected by clients, but that's a work question. That's not a personal life question.
0: It sort of translates, though, because the rejection you feel ends up feeling personal. You have had to learn how to work through that and not feel rejected or not take things personally. It's a real existential thing to tackle.
3: Well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs)
0: I mean, if we wanted to get super deep, we could probably find somewhere in your early childhood that that relates back to.
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think everybody's kind of built from their previous experiences. And, you know, I'm I'm sure I was teased along the way. And that led me to one direction versus another.
2: Well, I mean, if you think about the idea of rejection or being afraid of rejection or just you know, having to learn how to deal with it. I mean, yeah, you're designing projects, but you're the one who's designing them. So it is very personal. I mean, your studio is primarily you for the most part at the end of the day. So it reflects on, on you. And sometimes, you know, as a small business owner or a designer, it crosses over, you know, it's hard to separate like business stuff from personal stuff. At least that has been my experience as a small business owner. It is hard not to take things personally.
3: Yeah, of course. I mean, it's not like, you know, I shut my door at 6.30 PM and I forget about everything that happened that day, you know? I mean, that's like the good and the bad about this kind of industry. It's like designers are always thinking about work. They're always thinking about making things better. They're always problem solving. They're always playing out every step they take in life. They're playing that out in their heads. And so you can never really turn off. I, I guess that's one of those things that is so hard to do. It's you know, your clothes shop for the weekend and you're at a restaurant and the the door handle suggests that you pull it and you try to pull it, but you're supposed to push it. And it's just like, my God, design needs to be better than this, you know? And you see the entire world from that perspective. I mean, you know, when my wife and I registered for gifts for our wedding, oh my God, she wanted to kill me because I would refuse to accept a bottle opener. I would refuse to accept a can opener, like all these silly little things, a sponge, like Because it's not designed as well as it can be, you know, and she almost murdered me.
2: Oh, my gosh. I got into a fight with Jordan one time because I took too long looking at sponges in the sponge aisle because I couldn't decide which sponges would look the best with my kitchen. Like he was like literally ready to (laughs) get divorced. It it makes total Just pick a fucking sponge.
3: (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, there doesn't need to be 50 freaking sponges, you know. They should all
2: be beautiful.
3: (laughs)
0: <laughs> so sponges aside, do you also try to problem solve your life and your relationships? I
3: don't know, maybe in small doses. Over the past maybe four or five years, I've learned to separate work from life a lot better. I used to work six days a week, seven days a week, 14 hours a day. You know, that that's what I had to do for a long time. And I learned to separate one from the other. And now I can end the day. And if I've got an email or two to get back on, that's one thing. But I think the separation is necessary in making me better at what I do and make me understand the problems that I'm facing and the challenges that I'm trying to design for.
2: I have a question for you about your sense of purpose, because earlier you mentioned that you weren't a big believer in like things that were meant to be. But, you know, your mom is. Is there a reason why or do you ever feel like I am being pulled in this one direction or the universe is telling me that this is where I'm supposed to be or any of that stuff? Or is it just like mumbo jumbo? (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> no it's like I, I believe in in science and rationality you know i believe we're kind of all part of this giant chemical and biological petri dish you know without reason or purpose but that's not to say we can't create our own purpose and meaning. you know out of the randomness of it if i could create that path on my own i'm certainly doing it i don't think there's uh somebody above playing chess and and, and making me a, a better designer or making me you know get the work that i'm getting uh, i i just don't buy it. But I definitely, um, I know what I want and I know what I want out of it. And so I'm going to keep working towards that, you know?
2: So you believe that like, if you set a path for yourself, then if you like check all these boxes, then you're going to get to where you need to get. It's not like this thing where you're waiting for a sign or
3: (laughs) (laughs) I'll say this. All I know is that I follow a path that I think is um, going to get me where I want to be and that where I want to be changes. You know, I, my track has changed a, f- a couple times, a few times already since since I started my studio 11 years ago. And and maybe it will change again, but it's not going to happen simply because I'm following all these rules or these you know prescribed kind of paths.
2: Is your personal track and your professional track the same or how are they intertwined or do you have something different you envision for yourself down the line, like personally?
3: No, I think, uh, you know, my career is such a big part of my life. And it, it's it's my, you know, biggest love aside from my wife and my dog. It, it is my life. You know, I mean, for designers and artists and and chefs and, you know, it is your life. This is the life you were kind of made to build for yourself or, or whatnot. And uh, you can't kind of separate those two. I mean, you can say, I'm not going to work on weekends, like, you know, i right. not going to work late at night, but they're so integral to one another, you know, more than that, you know, the, the fact that the people in my life, you know, my wife has become my best critic. She's become um, that person who now is looking at the world the way I do, even though she's not a designer, she finds those faults and those flaws in the design world. And so because there's this connection that we've got personally and there's this understanding that she now has of me professionally, um, you can't separate those.
2: What is your path? I don't want to ask you, like, how do you see yourself in five years? But like, I I want to ask you, where do you see yourself in five years? (laughs) Or 10 years? I don't know.
3: Time will tell. I I do know that I am now at a point where the scale of the projects that I'm working on are much more massive and exciting and potentially um, extremely effective than they were five years ago or 10 years ago. You know, at, at first, you're not given the chance to Help change a company. You're just designing objects, hoping hoping they get produced. But you know, I'm 11 years in into my my studio, and the projects I'm getting are massive. They take a lot of um, investment on the parts of my clients, and it's very exciting that I get to be a part of a changing company. I get to actually have a say and have a stake in a strategy that's been developed. You know, and that's ultimately, right now at least, that's the most exciting thing in the world for me. You know, it's. Um, the fact that I'm trusted to this point where I'm handed the keys to this enormous project that will take three, four years, but at the end of it, we can actually make some significant dent in the market, you know, down the road. I don't know. You know, I, I do know that there are certain things that the goals that I have for myself that are, are outside of the world of design. I'm at this place where I'm where I should be right now. You know, I'm, I'm small. I don't have a big studio. I don't want a big studio. I've got a, a nice little network of freelancers when 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 the need arises. You know, so if I could grow it to three, four people and run it in that way, maybe I'll do that one day. I don't find the need right now um, or the desire. It's been years in the making kind of creating the, the, the job that I want for myself. and uh, And it'll change when I want it to, when I need it to. I don't want to force like the growth, you know, um, more so than I have to.
0: You mentioned personal goals that are separate from work. What's still on the list to be tackled? (laughs) Are we talking, uh, you know, a a lake home in Italy or or children or an empire?
3: An empire. I want to uh, castle south of France. (laughs) Yes. No, we just um, we did just buy a, a vacation house, my wife and I on the North Fork of Long Island, which is like heaven. It's quiet. It's peaceful. There's farms and wineries and water in every direction. You know, I constantly toy with the idea of leaving Manhattan for good. I've been here for 17 years. You know, I'm I'm officially a New Yorker. And every day I both love and hate the city more than I did the previous day. You know?
0: (laughs) (laughs) The feelings are just getting more intense.
3: (laughs) Exactly. Um, The personal goal isn't actually, like, getting up and leaving it's simply coming to grips with that question do i love it more or do i hate it more you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i think if i if i had an answer at the very least i'd be satisfied with that but i romanticize just getting up and leaving the city and moving to the north fork for good and you know having a, a great life there building my studio there but you know the truth is my industry's here it's in new york mm-hmm. you know it's, it's not out out there.
2: Yeah. Um, Where are you going to do your whittling and your bluegrass playing though? It's, it feels like a a cabin or a vacation house is a great place to do that.
3: (laughs) That's where I'm going to be doing that. I'm actually actually building a little shop in the basement so I can, you know, make things that I I don't, you know, living in Manhattan, I I don't have that luxury of having a a functioning shop. So I get to do all those other things that I don't do here. I still don't think I'll ever leave the city. You know, my wife works here, her career's here and Yeah. So that that personal goal you asked about, it's just, uh, I guess, dealing with my my thoughts about this city for once and for all. But I don't think that'll ever happen. (laughs) I will say, though, like when you go away for a weekend when you're nice and relaxed and then you come back to the city, the city feels amazing again. And then come Thursday, you're like, oh, my God, I need to get out. It's a symbiotic relationship, you know city mass, country mass, you
2: know. No, but I think it's a nice balance between having everything you love about the city, but being able to leave if you need to get away. Yeah.
3: Yeah. That being said, I, I think this is the greatest city in the world still. You know, I can't refute that. It would be, it would be tough to leave it.
2: So you mentioned you're working on bigger and more exciting projects. Do you have like a particular project that you want our listeners to take note of or be excited about?
3: We're doing a lot of work in the, Scandinavia right now with with some great companies some of them have been ongoing for two or three three plus years now um that I'll tell you you'll probably know more about in the fall there are more recent things um that we're working on um I know that you're probably familiar with Pablo lighting out in San Francisco we're launching our first project together which is uh, some lighting after Milan it'll be here at ICFF and then uh, the trade show circuit Neocon in, in Chicago I'm doing some new contract seating with a couple companies yeah, I wish I could talk about more right now, but... Top secret. <laughs> but it's, you know, I'm sworn to secrecy, you know? They know where I live.
0: Well, when these projects are not secret, I'm sure you'll be promoting them on the web and social media. So where can our listeners find you there to follow your work?
3: So my website is www. Do I have to even say that anymore? No. Out? I don't think so. Um, no,
0: just, you age um, yourself when you say the w.
3: <laughs> so they can go onto the information superhighway. And, uh, <laughs> And go to www.bradascalon.com, B-R-A-D-A-S-C-A-L-O-N.com. And my handle on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram is Brad Ask N-Y-C, B-R-A-D-A-S-C-N-Y-C.
2: Okay, well, we'll tell our listeners to get on there and find you on the Instagram so they can see all your cool stuff. And your whittling. We expect to see a lot of whittling, maybe some bluegrass playing. Maybe some band-aids along the way.
0: Can I look for my pipe sometime toward the fall? <laughs> fall is pipe smoking weather, so that would be ideal for me. Timeline work for you? Summer is
2: corn weather. Okay, great.
3: Um, So I'll eat the corn, I'll dry the corn husk, and I'll whittle you a little corn pipe.
2: You know what's really funny about this corn conversation is Brad sent me a necklace made out of corn. Oh
3: my God.
2: <laughs> One day I just got this random package in the mail and it was this necklace made out of little pieces of dried corn.
3: I completely forgot about that. I think I got that in Mexico. (laughs) Because like you're you love like really funky, awesome jewelry. And I just saw this and I was like, you know, Jamie would love this. I think I think I was in Mexico. I was in like in Tulum or
2: something. I think it came with a note that was like I got you a corny (laughs) present.
3: Oh my God. (laughs) Thanks for admitting that to your listeners.
2: Well, you know, now they know you have a sense of humor, too. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah, that's, like, that's, like, that's like a joke my mother-in-law would have told. Oh, it's a dad joke. <laughs> <laughs> you start telling them after you get into your 30s and then they just get worse over time. Thank you, Brad. It's been awesome talking to you. I'm, I'm glad we we're able to talk in a little more depth about you and your work, because normally we don't get to do that when we see each other. So it's been awesome chatting with you. And I'm really excited to see the new stuff with Pablo. Yeah, thank you.
0: Okay, and so we'll follow up with you for those footsteps MP3s because we're gonna <laughs> need some of those for our show notes.
2: Are there any YouTube videos? Oh my God! I'm YouTubing you tonight.
3: I'd thank send you, I'd, I'd send you a cassette and a CD, but I don't even know if you have those objects to play them anymore.
0: I can't handle a cassette, but I could work with a CD. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> thank you. This has been really fun.
3: Awesome, guys.
2: Thank you so much. Oh, he's <laughs> he's a great guy.
0: He is a great guy. He's a hardworking, dedicated soldier of design.
2: Yeah, I like his approach to design because, you know, we talked to a lot of designers and we're like, where's your inspiration? And they're like, oh, well, I saw a pedal floating in the wind and it you know made me draw this curve. We don't talk to anybody a, who says that shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's I've done so many designer interviews and okay. we do talk to people like that. But that's fine. I mean, that's cool. That's where they get their inspiration. But Brad is like he's very practical and what I appreciate about his honesty and in, in his approach is like he really just looks at the brief and really takes it seriously like okay, these are the things we need to hit. Like these are the boxes I need to check and You know, I'm going to make something that is functional and hopefully it ends up being beautiful. But, you know, he gets really focused on the actual like design process. I like that he does this reductive process.
0: I like that he's in tune with his rational side and that he very much espouses this idea of rational design. But I'm going to argue that there is an ineffable that... He doesn't quite know how to master it because he doesn't have control over it and therefore he doesn't talk about it. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, because his no, work, explain his work is not without formal beauty. Oh, yeah.
2: No, I mean, he said he's like the biggest design nerd and he won't even like buy a bottle opener if unless it's like beautiful. Right. He, I think he has an eye. I, I just feel like it's so subconscious for him that he doesn't focus on that part he focuses on all the other parts
0: so we're saying the same thing it's just that it's subconscious and because it's not conscious he doesn't give it as
2: much credit as he might if he had some sort of control over it yeah i mean because he grew up around artists so he's always been looking at form and been involved in sculptural beauty so i think it's just part of his dna
0: yeah, that's probably what it is in terms of manipulating notes and sounds with music and in terms of like bringing something forward from nothing. He's an architect in that regard. Right. And he's very, very in
2: tune with his practical thinking. You could argue and I'm going to become the armchair psychiatrist for a moment. Oh, yeah. Let's do it. He mentioned that he was f- trying to go into business school to fight against being what his father was, which is completely Artistic, right? Because he said his mom worked on managing the studio because his dad was just like super creative. And I just wonder if he's still doing that. Like he's fighting against the idea of starting with the beauty and the form and the artistic aspect of it. And so he's focusing on the strategic part of it.
0: I think you're onto something.
2: The good news is I have a PhD in bullshit, Amy. Yeah. (laughs) 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 But
0: the good news is whether he feels like he's rational and practical or a poet and a musician, he does manage to bring all of that together into beautiful mm-hmm. objects. So, and he's yeah, doing that he's exceedingly well. It. I think you should write him a prescription from your armchair psychologist. Oh, office. yes.
2: please <laughs> whittle 25 <laughs> corncob pipes. Yeah. <laughs> and learn five bluegrass songs. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and sign up for our newsletter. Read the show notes and see images of Brad's work and his rock and band footsteps at cleverpodcast.com.
0: And if you'd like to help support Clever, here are five easy ways. You can forward our newsletter to people who might be interested. You can make a donation on cleverpodcast.com. You can tell your friends, especially friends who aren't already in the design field. You can repost your favorite Clever quote on Instagram. And you can support our sponsors. Use the special offer code that we mentioned in the ads. Connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We always love to hear from you.
2: This episode of Clever was edited by Chris Modal of Your Studio with music by L1011.
1: Hello there. This message is coming to you from the History Extra podcast, From BBC History Magazine, a collection of fascinating conversations with leading historians, giving you the lowdown on history's biggest characters, hidden stories, and greatest adventures. Speaking of great adventures, this week, the History Extra podcast is brought to you by Booking.com. Whether you're looking for a culture-filled city break, a local getaway, or a far-flung adventure, you can save at least 30% with Booking.com's Black Friday Deals. These deals are for a limited time only, so you'll need to book before 1st of December to make the most of them. But the good news is that you'll have the flexibility to travel any time in 2021. Head to booking.com forward slash Black Friday to book your next big adventure.